Welcome to the Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 2, Episode 11. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in the Boiler Room, we have a great discussion from a recent webinar with Mike Egan, Managing Director at BMO Harris Bank. The topic of discussion is entitled, Managing Lender Relationships. And we discuss, among other topics, a lender's process of issuing a loan, syndicated loans, the dangers of over-leverage, compliance and forbearance agreements, and a general view of the lending market right now. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk, delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on a monthly basis. Feel free to see our content and sign up for our email list at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the boiler room. The reason why I set this webinar up with Mike is that this would be a good idea to just get his perspective on what happens behind the scenes when a franchisee, whether it's a family office, private equity firm, big franchisee, small franchisee, medium-sized franchisee, goes to acquire you know, a, a business or wants to make a loan. So I mean, we're going to have him talk a little bit about that. You know, the next life cycle of a business is if you want to acquire more stores, you have a D-lock, you want to upsize your facility. What actually technically happens there? You know what I mean? What do syndicated deals look like? I mean, a syndicated deal is like you have a lot, you know, now you're, you've got a business that needs more than 25 to 35 million in financing and one bank won't do the deal. What does it look like to, to have like four or five banks involved? Who's in charge of that? How do you manage the accounting and, and accountability and administration of it? And how do you put the right relationships in place to grow when you've got like six banks working for you. The dangers of over leverage, Mike made me talk about this, but I think it's an important one. Compliance and forbearance agreements. So that's something that we're seeing a little bit in this space right now, right? The forbearance agreements of either delays on on your loans or on your uh, landlord payments, maybe even royalty and advertising payments with your franchisor if you're if you're in a casual dining brand particularly. I wanted to talk a little bit about the life cycle of a banking relationship. And then finally, you know, Mike has an opinion on the current lending market. Uh, we do too. And so maybe we can just kind of bounce that back and forth once we get cooking. So with that being said, Mike, uh, let's see if you uh, can be heard now. Go for it. So I'll let you take it from here. Where do you want me to go? And you want to learn more about the lending process? Yeah. You want me to just kind of go through the list quickly? Yeah, go through the list. And, you, you know, I mean, what's behind that? I mean, answer, the, answer these questions on the board and then like the black box of like what, you know, what happens behind, behind in the black box of getting a loan approved from the time you know, they see Mike Egan, they get a phone call from Mike Egan until the day that the money ends up in the bank, you know, just all of that stuff. But yeah, please do. Got it. So, you know, the typical package that I'm looking for is three years of financials, the year over year analysis, the interim periods. I would tell you that the more granularity that's required today is, is sort of imperative because we are looking kind of period to period, store by store. What happened during COVID-19? So we're looking at uh, March, April, May, June, July. And, and for many concepts, you know, they had a really tough April, May. But by the middle of May, things seemed to turn and the fast food guys kind of figured out how to manage through this and actually drive sales and EBITDA to better levels, staffing levels and those sorts of things. PPP was a huge distraction, but a benefit at the end of the day. And, um, and so that you know, why we are looking for that granularity. So not only same store sales, but transaction counts and basically tell the story of what happened over the past year. I would expect lots more questions today when applying for a loan. So 
just be mindful of that. And in terms of how do you think about EBITDA in that in that case? Like for example, I mean, let's just say EBITDA, right? So you know what 2019 EBITDA was, 2020 EBITDA, depending on the brand, you either had like it was starting off normal, maybe year over year flat, and then all of a sudden it goes womb down and then goes womb up. And then now you look backwards and, you know, for many QSR concepts, at least, EBITDA is probably up a little bit over last year or maybe up a lot over last year, over year over year basis. Some concepts are went down and are just migrating to get back up. I mean, how do your, how do your risk guys look at, at normalizing EBITDA right now? I mean, like, how do you think about it? Yeah, I think that that's a good point. If there's been a big drop in those first few periods, March, April, May, and it, and it re- rebounded, let's say June, July, August, kind of moderating the two, offsetting them in a wash. I think the cross-check, the short answer is we're going to look at 2019 as sort of a normalized EBITDA number, right, under normal conditions. You're going to compare that to where their trailing 12 EBITDA has been, and you're going to have to make some assumptions. For for the folks that have experienced 30%, 40% sales increases, whether it's pizza or chicken in some cases, you know, you're going to have to edge that down as to, at some point in the next year, we're going to reach a point of normalization where you know, you're not going to be able to enjoy those same kinds of sales lifts permanently. As the uh, biggest problem we have right now is, you, you know, we're sort of, you know, believe it or not, entering a, a phase of restaurant sh- shortages with 100,000 restaurants closing so far in the industry. So there's an out-of-whack situation happening with demand that's probably not permanent. Okay. All right. So that's important for those who are listening, right? A little bit of normalization of some of the increases if you're in the QSR business and kind of a looking forward run rate. So, so there's a lot of modeling, more, more scrutiny. What, tell us about the process of term sheets and commitment letters. How do those work for you guys? And, and then also broadly across the lending industry. Yeah, I'd say uh, the term sheet process, we spend a lot more time up front and sometimes it feels onerous for the borrower, but I do like to ask a lot more questions, eliminate surprises, and then we put together a pretty meaningful analysis, a thoughtful analysis, and, and look at some uh, downside risks as well. But what I'm trying to do there is really uh, eliminate surprises, and we'll, we'll float that in front of the folks who do ultimately sign off on the commitment letter process. So I can give you a letter of intent or a summary of terms that's going to be 99% where we're going to end up once the commitment letter is approved through a deeper due diligence. And so once we have an agreement on terms, we're probably looking at about a two-week process to get to a commitment letter approval, assuming information's flowing and, and everybody's uh, happy with the answers that are coming along with that process. So all in all, it's probably about four weeks to five weeks to get to a commitment letter after a deeper due diligence phase. And then your closing process, depending on the collateral, could be anywhere from the next two weeks to as much as the next four or five weeks if there's a lot of real estate due diligence involved. Any comments on how credit decisions are made? We've been pretty consistent through this, this phase, whereas the key metrics that probably does you know drive most credit decisions are least adjusted leverage, and it's probably uh, debt to EBITDA and fixed charge coverage ratios, but least adjusted leverage is the driver. And what I would tell you that for solid concepts, kind of sort of tier one, as we used to call them, in the QSR space, you're probably looking at five and a half times to maybe 5.75 times lease adjusted leverage as sort of a hurdle for the term debt you can put on a company at closing. 
Now, each brand's going to be a little bit different. Some brands have higher EBITDA margins like Taco Bell or perhaps Wingstop versus others uh, in the burger business that are going to be lower, you know, kind of high single digit. That's going to influence how much debt you can put on the business. Yeah, very good. You want to talk about how you calculate, did you want to talk about quickly how you calculate least adjusted leverage just so people know? Yeah. So uh, for uh, some borrowers who are on their on their growth phase, right, 10, 20 restaurants, you may be working with lenders that don't look at least adjusted leverage. They look at debt to EBITDA or fixed charge coverage ratios. As you grow, you will be required to look at least adjusted leverage fundamentally because your business is financed with leases and you have to convert that lease payment into an imputed debt number. And the way we do it, which is just a rule of thumb, there's not a real good answer as to why we use it, but the the rationale is you're capitalizing the rent with a multiple of eight, which is about a 12 and a half cap, and you're multiplying eight times the rent, adding the debt that you're going to be borrowing, and that is in the numerator. In the denominator, you're going to use EBITDA after corporate overhead and any adjustments plus the rent. And so when I talk about least adjusted leverage of five and a half to 575, some concepts are down to five and a quarter or five times. That's the number you're trying to solve for uh, in order to get credit approved. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Know that calculation, right? That's like uh, that drives, that's a key driver to borrowing yeah. money and also staying compliant with the money too. So there we go. Very good. Let's go to the next slide then. Acquiring more stores. So now I'm a franchisee. I've gotten into business. Old Mike Egan and BMO Harris has lent me some money. Give the example of like a, I don't know, 30 or 40 unit franchisee or 20 unit franchisee, whatever. Someone you bank and now they, uh, they're an acquisitive buyer and they want to they grow. What's next? They call Mike and say, I want to sure. buyer or, you know, I want to build more stores. I want to grow out my trade area. How do you think about it? What technically do you do? Yeah. So Think of your business as managing the level of debt across new and older stores, existing stores, right? And so when I'm going to do a term loan for acquisition financing upfront or recapping your existing debt, I'm also going to provide you with a development line of credit, your DLOC, DLOC, that's in your second uh, tab there. Your development line of credit is typically 80 to 100% financing of the hard costs of a new store. So if you think about internal rate of return and leveraged internal rate of return, if I'm providing 100% financing of the hard costs, you're covering the soft costs to get that new store open, that's very powerful in terms of uh, return on investment for the equity owners, because my debt is typically a lot cheaper than the cost of the equity required to build new stores. We do want you to grow. Uh, it does make sense. And, and in markets where it makes sense, we are, you know, supporting the franchisees to get to that level with organic new growth. If you find an acquisition in an adjacent market or even in an adjacent state, uh, we don't like you to stretch too far and wide unless you've got a really strong infrastructure and some history of uh, and or some history of managing multiple markets. But um, we will look at embedded equity that builds up in the business over time as you're amortizing debt or as you're growing EBITDA that could be used as a contribution towards new acquisitions in addition to any cash equity you might put into a new deal. So that's one way to think about growing. Using again, the bank financing, which is a much lower cost of capital to grow as, as a bigger component uh, to your capital stack, if you will. You know, kind of jump right into your return economics down below and uh, 
your cash on cash returns, just uh, many, most operators are familiar with that. How much cash am I taking home at the end of the day versus my equity investment? That's simple enough to a- answer. But historically, you know, you could probably be looking at 20, 30, 40% returns on new stores for sure. Uh, but for acquisitions, because the purchase prices are higher, right? Six, seven, eight times EBITDA, maybe more if Rick is selling your company. And, uh, and, you know, your ability to get a high return on that investment is, it becomes more challenging. What I would say to buyers today who say multiples are completely out of whack, they make no sense at all. I go back to the saying, I've been saying it for a few months now, is that we used to say fast food restaurants were recession resistant. It's pretty safe to say that they're apocalypse resistant now. Their ability to survive and, and perform at a, at a higher level in this pandemic, as dining rooms are closing, most operators today almost welcome that in some respect because it's a much more simplified model to run a restaurant with a drive through Obviously, it's a huge challenge for folks who have dining rooms and rely on that. Now you're relegated back to relying on delivery, which is not very profitable, or takeout or curbside delivery as an alternative. And and then, of course, patio dining or parking lot dining, which unfortunately, as winter is coming, will be more challenging for those operators. But uh, back to the, the, you know, are 15 to 20 percent returns acceptable today? Think about these investments on a risk-adjusted basis. If they perform this well during a pandemic, and they perform well during good times as well, your ability to take a lower return, right? So it's the old risk and return paradigm. You can assume that you can take a little bit less risk, and especially if you look at the 10-year treasury, which is down below, well below a point, and that's the risk-free rate. And if your premium above the risk-free rate is up in the 15, 20% range, that might be a fair return today. I think it's a wonderful point. And it's a wonderful point for a lot of people who are listening to this podcast webinar and podcast too. I mean, a lot of these folks are sitting in New York City looking at a portfolio of investments that may include all kinds of things, investing in beer companies in Belgium and buying uh, Amazon stock and buying real estate in California, whatever you're doing. Uh, You know, you talk about being apocalypse resistant. Of course, you and I have seen when E. coli and genetic corn and all these things hit brands and and do damaging things rats in restaurants and bad social media publicity so they're not you know they're not totally uh, risk free but I, I agree with you and of course I'm not objective either right I'm, I'm more subjective I'm part of this industry but I, I look at what's happened post covid for the the QSR companies particularly and I say my goodness, the the inherent risk of operating these businesses is probably less than even I realized, you know. And uh, so I think I think you you bring up a lot of good points when you think about someone's broad investment portfolio. What do you think about multiples? What do you see in I mean, of course, I I talk about this all the time, but what do you th- what do you see about uh, is, is it a Rick Ormsby deal? Is it a Rick Ormsby deal? <laughs> hey man, it's a big multiple. <laughs> yeah, historically, so this is my twenty first year of doing this, and historically. You know, you could say that typical multiples for restaurant franchisees were somewhere in the four and a half to six and a half range. And I do remember the days of when a very large Taco Bell franchisee in, in say, 2009, I think it might have been, traded for six and a half times. And everybody was like, whoa, that's out of line. That's so crazy. I would safely say today the marketplace for Taco Bell, which is sort of the gold standard in the fast food space because of their EBITDA margins, their dominance in that 
uh, Mexican QSR, their ability to add new products and adding fryers over the past year or two. You know, those multiples are drifting up. I know buyers are not going to want to hear it, but it's eight to nine times. And in some cases, maybe a little bit higher than that. Back in June, when we did our thing with John Hamburger on another webinar, you know, I was kind of predicting that real estate values as well as multiples would probably hold up for anything with a drive through. And I think that's probably true. You could probably add a little bit more insight into that as well as to what you're hearing from buyers, what they're willing to pay and and certainly what sellers are probably demanding now. Yeah, it's a good question. I will, you know, heck, I can do another webinar on this, but I guess my quick reaction would be, generally speaking, if you're, if you're, uh, you know, kind of a middle America a QSR operator and you're listening to this conversation and, you're, and you're, uh, your business is doing well, you can expect that your valuations are probably, you know, two things affect, affect valuations, right? EBITDA, multiple, if you're just selling an operation, not, not, a, not the real estate. You have your EBITDA multiple over here, and then you have your EBITDA over here, right? So um, both of them affected. I would say the EBITDA multiples in many cases are flat, holding up well. In some, they might slightly be coming up slightly, right? And some of these brands that have just taken off, like uh, the case in point might be like a Sonic or you know something like this where sales are, or Popeyes, where sales are up like 30 and 40% month over month, over month year over year, just shocking amounts. But uh, your EBITDA is up in many cases too. And I know there's this normalization of EBITDA that has to happen when you're between buyers and sellers. And there's a negotiation, obviously, and the lenders are involved too. But uh, EBITDA in many cases is up too. So, so uh, I, think, I think what you're saying is, is absolutely, absolutely right. Yeah, I, I give you some empirical data on uh, real estate as well. Initially, I was caught in the middle of an, a transaction. We were doing some appraisals in, in April, and the appraiser came back and attached a 10% discount, not knowing what the future was going to be and how it was going to occur, but it was a fast food deal. And, uh, and I think that was a mistake, but at the time, who would know what was going to occur? Uh, the empirical data has come out for the second quarter on triple net lease, sell lease back properties. Uh, there's still a 60 basis point premium for triple net lease restaurants, fast food restaurants. And it's only drifted up about 15 basis points from a year over year basis, and, which is not bad at all. Uh, and um, I think that really was only maybe most of the larger brands that we would finance or, or, the, or you, know, you think Wendy's talk about KFC. So there has been very little movement in that and that range for those cap rates is still between call it 540 and maybe six yeah. percent on the high side and uh, yeah, depending of, on lease term and those by tax some of it being driven by tax uncertainties you, you know what i mean sellers sellers wanting to to, to sell quickly uh, potentially but but uh, there, there seemed to be a really you know and, and people obviously who are selling out of things to buy other things right and to do it and to defer taxes and 1031 exchanges i i see the same thing i think i think what you're saying is right the market's really fluid it looks a lot like the residential housing market in texas where you are or florida where i am where things are falling off the shelf quickly aren't they you know well that's what happens when uh when powell dumps uh, money out of helicopters and you've got a uh, a couple of trillion of stimulus coming from the federal government. There's a lot of cash. The savings rate spiked to 19%. I saw that. After the stimulus checks went out. That's a huge number that people have. There's a lot of distress out there. There's a lot of people suffering. There's no question, but there's a lot of cash out there too right now. Yeah, yeah. A lot of, a couple of brands, I won't name them in particular. A lot of the franchisees are good friends of mine. They call me and they say PPP was a, was a blessing to us. And so 
you know, whatever yeah. you like the way that was administered, it provided a lot of helping hands to, to, to a lot of franchisees and good dear friends of mine who, who have really good, large businesses that were able to, to advance because of it. Tell us a little bit about syndicated deal. First of all, what the heck is a syndicated sure. deal? Are you, are you in Hollywood or something? What is that? <laughs> Think of it more of a club deal. And uh, what we do, it's, it's a club of banks, a group of banks that you pull together to do larger deals. And uh, the idea is that the banks want to spread their risk for larger transactions, right? And so for a franchisee, why would I want to do this? The fees are a little bit higher, but you have one bank putting together a deal, bringing in multiple lenders, and it's very common in the private equity space. And of course, all the large corporates out there, they'll use a club of investors, a group of investors, in our case, banks buying the debt as most don't really want to be more than 25 or 35 million in exposure to a single borrower, just from a diversification strategy, if there's a, an event of failure. Mm-hmm. And uh, some lenders will go higher than that. Some prefer to be lower than that. But that's sort of the sweet spot for most lenders. And why would you do this? There are some additional fees. You pay that administrative agent, let's say it's BMO putting together a deal. And we did, we've done uh, at least a couple of deals here where we were a co-lead arranger, for a chicken concept recently at about 33 million, we took a ticket in somebody else's deal. But then we were the lead arranger on a $51 million deal on a Mexican concept where we were the lead arranger brought in another bank. And so there's some annual fees that you'll pay in that 15 to $35,000 a year range, uh, where most of the deals are at our size. That's to pay, say, BMO Harris Bank to administer the loan, to check the compliance certificates to deal with the different banks, to negotiate with them if there's waivers or uh, covenant issues, or just to get on the phone and, and work with them. It is much more convenient instead of having four different banks. And most lenders do not like disparate collateral. They don't want to you know, have one lender with the good stores and then one lender with a group of bad stores, and you're fighting over who, where the cash flow is going. Lenders prefer to have one credit agreement with a set of covenants that are mutually agreed upon up front by the borrower and the banks involved. And we have a lien on all assets of the business. It's a lot cleaner. It's a lot more organized. There are certain borrowers who don't like that. They prefer to have uh, a little chaos in the bank group and have folks competing against each other, which is fine. That's a good strategy from a, from a borrower's perspective, if you can achieve it. But generally, the market prefers these cleaner, larger uh, transactions, and sellers do as well, because they have certainty of close. And that's probably the most important thing. That's where these things come into play is during M&A activity, where you're buying a larger group of stores. So yeah, yeah, great, great explanation. Let me ask this question. I'm a 40-unit franchisee. I live in, oh, who knows? I live in Iowa, okay? I started the business. I, I drive a pickup truck. I see all my stores in the course of a week. I've done it for 40 years. And I have a business now, 40 years later, that's worth something. It's worth $60, $70 million. And I've got a, this fancy schmancy buyer from New York City who uh, is going to come in and buy it. And he's going to borrow $60 million, let's say, whatever. Make me feel comfortable that this, that this isn't the craziest structure with risk and a hundred different lenders in a bucket that will never close. If it's a large bank that's got a track record of, you know, actually closing deals and leading deals, which we do, and many of the larger ones do as well, 
you can take some comfort as a seller that it's going to get across the finish line. Reputation. You know, our, our marketplace. Reputation. Yeah, reputation goes a long way. For a bank that's never done a syndication before in the franchise finance space, I'd probably have some questions about that. But at the end of the day, it's, it's on your buyer to make sure they fulfill the requirements of their purchase agreement, which includes getting the financing done. That's honestly probably the only way to get a deal size that large financing, larger financing done is to you know go that route of a syndicated deal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I know we're going to talk a little bit more about, about how to manage those relationships going forward. So let's keep that in mind, everybody about how to manage this structure once you have it in place, if you've borrowed money under a syndicated deal, whether it's your first or second. I wanted you to have an opportunity to talk a little, about, a little bit about over leverage. You know, clearly, clearly we, we see that from time to time. It, it, it rears its ugly head at certain times in the life cycle of a franchise business when the economy or the brand doesn't perform well, but uh, go, go, go right ahead. I know you have some things on your heart. Yeah, now this idea of a bifurcated loan structure that some are pushing uh, prior to COVID-19. And, you know, having done this for 21 years, I've been through two or three of these down cycles. What I have seen historically is that when you push the envelope on leverage, you're going to get caught. And, uh, you know, this is not a very high margin business. Most restaurant operators today are talking about single digit EBITDA of the 6% to maybe 10% range. A few are the outliers at 12, 13, 15%. But you don't have a lot of room to make mistakes. And, you know, the old rule of thumb was that if your sales fall, let's say 5%, you might erase two and a half percentage points from your EBITDA margin. So if you got a 10% EBITDA margin, you're talking about a 25% decline in EBITDA. You're likely to trip a covenant if you're running your leverage very high. And obviously tripping covenants, you're gonna spend more time on the, on the phone with the banks than you will with your GMs trying to drive sales and EBITDA. So we're probably the last folks you wanna to talk to unless you're buying something and we're uh, rolling over some debt. The idea of a bifurcated structure is another way that kind of uh, plays a little bit of an arbitrage between using that formula of eight times the rent you charge your operating company versus 100% of the debt you might have on your real estate company. So you've got a real estate company and you've got your opco company, your operating company. You have debt, perhaps from two different lending groups on each one. On an individual basis, your operating company might have a 550 or 575 lease adjusted leverage and it looks fine for the lenders on that business who don't have the real estate as collateral. If you were to collapse the debt, structure uh, that evolved that, that exists with the real estate company. So you add 100% of the debt that's at the real estate holding company that you're charging rent to the opco. If you put the two together, instead of 575, you may actually be at six and a half or seven times EBITDA, uh, EBITDA rather, in a lease adjusted leverage global analysis. Now, some broker types out there will tell you that, hey, that's totally acceptable. You should be willing to do that. You should not look at it. But the reality is it's debt. Any way you cut it. And there's an arbitrage between the two because eight times the rent is oftentimes less than the debt that's on the real estate holding company. So this bifurcated structure, I would tell you the sweet spot's probably six times. And, and I've tried to message that to, through the, to the franchisors as well. I think they're on the same page. They're starting to look at that more meaningfully. 
especially if an operator is using some expensive sale leaseback. And uh, you think about sale leaseback as a third party rent, uh, it, you know, that's, that's expensive too. But even separating with two lending groups, it's just going to get messy if operations slip. And so we're not big fans of it. We'll do it. We'll finance both sides of that transaction. We'll sometimes hold even just the OPCO side of it if we look at the global and it still makes sense. But I would just be mindful of that. Don't push the envelope. You'll end up paying for it later. Yeah. Yeah. It's well said. So I said, thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that. And how about, uh, you know, obviously sale leasebacks, uh, you know, method of financing, a method of growing. Sometimes when we sell businesses, we separate the business and real estate and sell them separately. People always ask me, what do I do with the real estate? And I say, you usually see three different things happening when someone calls us and wants to sell their business. You can either, you know, sell the business and the real estate to an op to the operator in one transaction. You can sell the business to to, to an operator and keep the real estate, or you can sell the business to an operator and sell the real estate to a separate party, whether it's in one transaction to a REIT or in many transactions at a better cap rate, but more hassle and more fees typically to on the 1031 market. Um, but either way, sale leasebacks can be a part of the business. It's not, it's, but, but, but they come with a risk. And in the big rent increases that we used to see back, Mike, I would say, I saw them getting signed up in like 08, 09, 2010, and then we got whacked with the Great Recession. And you saw these operators who all of a sudden had 10% sales drops or 15% sales drops. And then their first five-year kind of kick up in rent happened, and they signed 15% rent increases over five years. And by the time they hit the, that, most of them were, most of those guys were insolvent if they had done it across their whole portfolio. So I've seen the warts and the hickeys from that. I don't, you know, but go ahead and tell us your thoughts. Yeah, look, I've been on both sides of it. I've sold both sides of it. I will convince you that you should finance the real estate and I can convince you that you should sell the real estate. Are you in the restaurant business or are you in the real estate business? Is that, you know, the fundamental returns you're going to get restaurant operations are going to be upwards of 20, 30, 40% if you're great, right? If you're investing in real estate, you're going to get that cap rate. That's your return of and return on capital. So it's, you know, it, for a smaller operator, it makes sense to keep the dirt longer because it is your rainy day fund. It is a retirement strategy for many. But if you really want to get larger, you really have to make that decision. I want to invest in operations because I'm going to get at my highest levered rate of return, my internal rate of return off of that side of the business. What I would probably, the, the right answer is you're going to do some of both. You're going to prune your portfolio. You're going to sell the stores that you don't want to own long-term. You're going to do sale leasebacks on those. You're going to try to negotiate one and a half, two 2% rent increases per year. So you're not slammed every five years. That'd probably be my recommendation. And um, you're going to keep the really great sites for long-term retirement or to flip at another time. I will tell you this though. I mean, cap rates, um, I don't think they've really been much lower than where they are now. I know they were low in 2006, 2007 or so, and they shifted back up a bit. But people have a, uh, a, a complete aversion to paying capital gains to the point where they want to invest in triple net lease properties. And so they will buy it. And, and they think of it as like a bond investment where you own a piece of real estate at the end of it all, once the uh, debt is paid off and whatnot, or the end of the 20-year lease, let's say. Uh, and there's renewals. I mean, it's, it's attractive. I, I think it's a mix of both strategies. I, I would just say this too. I mean, I, I'm an entrepreneur, right? And so I've, uh, I understand the life, the life cycle that happens in, in the psyche that happens in many people's minds. If you're an operator out there, I feel you, right? You, you first start this company, 
and you don't know whether it's going to make it. And you're up and you're up at night, three in the morning, staring at the ceiling and, you know, wondering if it'll all hold together. Right. And then you meet some success. And once you meet some success, your immediate reaction is in many cases, okay, I want to delever, de-risk myself and pay it down and have as little debt as possible and have as much security and collateral as possible because I remembered how bad it was when I got started and how scared I was. Okay. And then you go, that's like phase two. And then phase three is you you come out of it and and you're like, maybe I was too conservative. I've been running this business. It's been successful now for seven or eight or 10 years. And I kind of want to grow it a little bit. Maybe I need to take on some responsible debt. And then if you get to the next stage, which is where you want to really grow it because you're confident that it's going to succeed, then you tend to move along the the real estate life cycle that way. And then you sell the real estate to fund acquisitions of higher returning operations. I, I, you know, whatever that's worth, I think that's really wise. Last thing about, I'll just say this, if brands aren't performing well, you know, over leverage is, it it can be a problem, right? If you're in a brand where you're projecting sales are going to be down 5% year over year, the sales deleveraging make uh, make over leverage a massive a massively worrisome thing for a lender uh, you know I'm, I'm sure so let's yeah. move on we'll move on to the next and i saw one question from someone who's a friend of mine actually and i and let me answer it does it matter if do ebitda multiples matter depending on state and i would say ebitda multiples in what we do matter in a couple different ways number one is going to be brand number two is going to be the performance of the stores themselves the third is going to be very clearly the the number of units and number four is going to be a location of the units, you know, and then you're going to have other things like, are they remodeled or do they need remodels? What do the leases look like? What are the margins? But those first four are going to be, are going to be some of the areas that are most important. And yes, it does matter by state for sure. So all things equal, uh, I mean, there's a lot of variability here, but all things equal, uh, a Wendy's location in, uh, you know, Tennessee is going to be worth more than a Wendy's location in New York. Sure. It is going to, it is all things equal, a, a KFC location in California will be worth a little bit less than a KFC location in Las Vegas or Phoenix, maybe, you, you know, that's just, uh, you know, because of some of the regulatory issues in, involved there. But, but if you have a larger transaction of great stores, sometimes people will, will uh, I think, rightly look at, look, look past the state. There you go. It's more mm-hmm. complicated than just a singular question, but it's a good question. Yeah. I'll make a point about EBITDA multiples. The buyer has one on the deal he just closed. The seller has one. And Rick Ormsby's got one. Yeah. And none of them match. <laughs> none of them match. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, it's a matter of what you think you can do with the assets, why you would pay more, right? Or is, is there low-hanging fruit there or not? I think that's a, you know, was it a good operator or not, right? It's, it depends on the brand. Where's the brand headed? There's a number of different variables, but, you know, you make your money when you buy an asset. So it is kind of critical to think about that long and hard. But again, we're in a different paradigm right now where if you're thinking about risk adjusted returns, being in the QSR business has suddenly become much more viable. Yeah. Or what is your thesis? Having a a drive through. Yeah. Having a drive through that that thesis, I would even before COVID-19, when I meet with family offices, private equity guys, I would say that your number one investment criteria should be the drive through. You say, why? Right. Because because it's easier to get the food. People want convenience. They want fast. Dennis Lombardi was an old mentor of mine. And, you know, he used to say that uh, if the drive through folks could manage to actually throw the food out the window at 10 miles an hour through your window, that's what 
customers are really looking for, right? <laughs> they, you know, just incredible speed of service, get the yeah. food right, make it hot. And, and now it's got this new paradigm of, you know, it's conceivably safer to stay in your car when you get your hot food. Isn't that funny? So true. Well, let, well let, let's keep going. we got about maybe six or seven minutes maybe to keep going on these slides. I'd yeah. like to get this one because this one's a good one. So, you know, what the heck is quarterly compliance? What does that mean to me? Uh, and then go through some of these questions. And yeah, us- sure. A quarterly compliance certificates, you're going to attest and sign off that you have met your ratios that we agreed upon in the credit agreement up front that you're going to meet every year. And oftentimes they do step down every year after 12 months. So gradually you're delevering the company. Now, obviously, if you're looking at another acquisition or you want to do a dividend recap, which are less probable today on the dividend side of things, but you're going to reset covenants when you do a new acquisition. So those numbers move around. Think of covenants as nothing more than the ability of the lender to hit the pause button if your plan is not working. If you're not hitting the EBITDA margins you thought you were, or your sales are in decline, it's not designed to be a gotcha. And it's not designed for the bank to try and shut you down. It's really to just get you back to the table to think about that. Yeah. So um, the, if you're out of compliance. Am I going to jail? I mean, what's happening if I'm out of compliance? You're going to get back to the table and you're going to negotiate with a lender, probably a new reset of covenants. So maybe over a shorter term, like show me the plan to get back to where we were and where we thought we were going to be on the backside of it. Now, obviously, in COVID-19, a lot of that goes out the window because, you know, governments, local governments are shutting you down for 24 hours notice if you're a full service operator and dining rooms are getting shuttered. So your ability to come up with a long term plan is a lot more challenging. Banks understand that they're going to have to you know, kind of think about that. And when it comes to terms and I would tell you that in certain situations today, it's going to be really hard to measure a trailing 12 EBITDA that you'd use for a measurement on a compliance certificate you're probably going to go to a liquidity measure, make sure that there's enough liquidity in the business if it's burning cash over the next six or 12 months. And that's going to be a more important trigger to get folks back to the table if things are not going well. But look, if you're out of compliance, the bank has the right to call the loan and ask for it to be paid off. So you know, at the end of the day, that's what it's really all about. Banks are not in the business of chasing borrowers out the door. And, you know, if you're working with a lender who's done this for a really long time, guys who've been restaurant operators, I feel your pain, who understand the business better than some who are kind of new to the space, they're going to be a little bit more understanding and hopefully a little bit more uh, compromising when it comes to coming up with a solution to kind of get you through what what could be a forbearance agreement. Like, we're not going to default you. We're going to, we're going to sign an agreement. You're going to hit these mile posts to work your way out of a trouble spot. And as long as you do that, we're going to forbear on any kind of default. And so if you don't hit those metrics, then obviously we go back to the rights that the bank has in order to try and get repaid. But you know, in these times right now, bankers have been very flexible. You've had to be. And, and the regulators told us to be in back in March. Now, at some point, that's going to flip. And the regulators are going to force us to write things down and qualify things as troubled debt restructurings and whatnot that will uh, require bigger reserves. But for right now, I think we're still in this phase of let's just work together to try to get through this. Two comments I would make. I mean, the first comment is I think you go into a relationship with anybody, whether it's you got to look at a lender as a partner, right? I mean, they're they're invested in your business. You really, really do 
need to whatever visibility you can, whether it's through references or friends of yours who've been and been, you know, if you're a franchisee who have taken loans from some of these banks, like, you know, you, you really want to find out who is in the trenches with you when problems happen. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing when we're all skipping and skipping down the road, like Pollyanna, but if we're sitting in the trenches in world war one, back to back shooting, you know, I need to know who's in the trenches with me and someone who, who, who will fight for my business if I come into a problem. And I think that's where one of the real value adds that, uh, that, that Mike and his team provide. And I, I think uh, across the space, you, you find varying levels of, uh, of that type of uh, loyalty, you know, and stick to itness. Uh, yeah, I had a second yeah. point that I, oh, the second point is a comment, uh, Mike. And you made the comment that, um, you know, that there, you guys are easy right now, but there's a time that will come. What do you expect will happen when the time comes? And, you know, when, when it's time to pay back some of the, you know, to restructure these, these loans, when it's time for all the deferrals or some of the interest or interest or whatever it is that, that you and other lenders have, have oftentimes or sometimes been involved with on the behalf of franchisees, when does the comeuppance come here, you know? Yeah, I, I think it depends is probably the answer. Uh, if an owner is willing to step up and put equity in or find another source of capital, the senior lender is going to be more accommodative with interest only phase, maybe maybe uh, capitalizing some interest in rare situations, especially if there's risk of default. I mean, the idea is that we're going to get through this by maybe next summer. When we have a vaccine and it may be distributed or we have a better sense of uh, therapy treatments, so the risk of death is not so high. But that's all speculation for right now. So I, I think um, it depends. It really does. And if you have a borrower who's like, hey, you're on your own. This is a non-recourse loan. You, you figure it out. Here's the keys. You run the restaurants. I don't want to work the grill again. <laughs> so banks are going to try and figure out a way to get it done. But this is when true character is revealed. You know, we used to say there were the five C's of lending back in the day when I was coming up as a junior banker. And the first one is character. Mm-hmm. And if the character of the borrower is not strong, you're not going to be able to overcome that with the other four C's, which are like collateral and capital and yeah. capacity to repay and those sorts of things. Um, and so it really does depend on the relationship and what a borrower is willing to do to help get through this. And most franchisees, this is their livelihood. And they've personally guaranteed franchise agreements. So they have liability that's real. And they're going to do whatever it can to try and save their family, to protect the bankers. Most are, are very good folks that are in just a very tough spot right now. I do say, you know, I, I didn't want to, while we get off this compliance agreement, there was a question that came in about how are we handling COVID-19 adjustments and PPP money, whether that's like a, a non-recurring income, if you get forgiven debt, banks are not doing that. They're being very, very, very selective in any kind of a COVID-19 adjustment because it's, it's actually, I think where we're all sort of headed is that it's really hard to figure out what is the right COVID-19 add back. And instead, let's figure out, look, if there's a breach of a covenant, let's figure out a way to grant a waiver to help you do what you need to do right now, whether it's distributing a little bit of money or restructuring something. We're going to be more accommodative around that versus trying to figure out what's the right EBITDA adjustment. Uh, for revenue that was lost and never occurred, that's not going to happen. That's that's not gap. That's uh, the SEC and uh, you know the, the folks in the FASB and whatnot have given guidance on what is non-recurring and recurring. And, and the bottom line is something that recurs 
after two quarters is recurring. It's not a recurring event. And, it, and for right now, it appears a lot of this is going to continue to be recurring for the foreseeable future. Yeah, thank you. Mike, we got about five or six more minutes total. Hey, uh, we got one more slide to kind of go through. So let's go through it quickly. And then for those of you listening, please reach out with some questions if you want to. If I see any questions pop in, we'll answer them and kind of pivot from this last piece, which is just, well, we have two more slides, but let's do, uh, we, we, I think we've talked about the life cycle of a banking relationship, the value add of bankers. Do you have any, anything, anything you want to talk about here just in like a minute or less? Relationship banking, somewhat of an anachronism, right? I mean, uh, in today's world, bottom line is things are very transactional, mm -hmm. right? I am a great guy. I'm a wonderful trusted advisor. I've worked hard to get to that level. But if somebody's offering you a deal, it's a quarter point lower in spread. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes I lose and I get a, you know, I get an attaboy. But I think there's a lot of value in relationship banking, I'm an old school guy when it comes to that. And I do think that having a really good trusted advisor, uh, especially one that's been or tempted to be an entrepreneur opening a restaurant has a little bit of perspective or have been through multiple cycles, that's going to be very valuable in times like this. There's going to be a lot of pressure from senior leadership at different banks. There's, there's already stories of banks exiting. And so that's one of the reasons I'm feeling a little bit bullish about next year, because, you know, BMO is over 200 years old. We actually predate Canada, believe it or not. And, um, you know, we plan on being here for the long haul. My boss, Rick Thompson, has been doing it for over 30 years. I've been doing it for over 20 years. Many of the people on our team have been in this space for over 20 years. So it's a great business and it's and we're a fabulous group of folks to work with. So that's our plug for BMO Harris Bank. And we're getting deals closed right now. And we are taking risk where others are not. And so, you know, I'm, I'm planning, this was always our investment thesis. There's always going to be lenders that will undercut me on price. And there will be borrowers that chase price. And those are probably not the borrowers I'm going to have long-term as a customer. It's those long-term relationships that, you know, you're willing to pay for a little bit of good advice. And uh, you'll sleep better at night knowing that somebody's fighting hard for you internally and will be there in the long haul. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. You know, I did a lender survey a couple of months ago now, and it was, the question was basically, are you, know, what's your, what, what are, you are you lending money right now? And you, if you divided it roughly evenly, uh, you know, a fourth, a fourth, a fourth, a fourth, like a fourth said no, a fourth said not really, another fourth said yeah, cautiously for the right opportunity, and a fourth said yeah, you know, we're looking to take market share and really grow. And so, uh, lend, the, the market is there. There is liquidity, but there's, you know, there's less, there's maybe less of it still, still enough, clearly. Uh, and, and Mike and BMO Harris are, are one of the ones, I think, in that fourth pie, of uh, 25%. You know, I think it's important that we talk about having a club of lenders for your growth, right? Because we talked about the syndication, talked about how if you're going to be a big franchisee and you're going to have a, a, a big, uh, you know, a big portfolio, you're uh, likely going to have to have relationships with with multiple lenders in order to finance large amounts of money. And, uh, you know, we did have a question that came in here. Uh, and the question was basically, do you treat private equity uh, sponsor like groups the same way that you do uh, franchisees? I think if I could characterize that question. Well, you know, first my of all, heart, will the French. My heart is with the, the guy the in the pickup truck because I because I, I was the guy in the pick. I am the guy in the pickup truck, man. So come on, Mike. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Look, uh, private equity in, 
is different than family offices uh, are different than owner operators, right? Each one has uh, strengths and challenges. The, the, the interesting aspect that I've seen, the interesting challenge I've seen lately is family offices are very in, interested in the space and they're starting to understand that. And we financed a few. Uh, when we financed the Bessemer Group's investment in Moss Restaurant Group down in Houston, 75 or so Taco Bells, they understood this. This was a great investment for the long term. It had real estate attributes. It had uh, powerful growth economics and the ability to build on an organization around a really strong young management team. And so, you know, why would you do that? That it makes great sense. I mean, I, I tell a, a lot of the private equity guys, as we said up earlier about the internal rate of return, and, and you're not going to get four and five times your investment, like you might in something a little bit more speculative, but these are solid base hits and doubles, you know, that you'll get over time with high teens, low twenties, kind of levered internal rates of return. And that's a great piece of any portfolio strategy, certainly one that performs during a pandemic. So, but then at the end of the day, you know, it it goes back to the owner operator. This is his family. This is his legacy. Sometimes it's his, his children's investment and their children, and they'll want it something that lasts for the long term. And having a really good group of trusted advisors, whether it's CPAs and lawyers or bankers, around that investment, that's very, very important. So, you know, th- those are probably some of the important considerations. I think the franchisors are really going to be drivers of who's allowed to own these fast food restaurants in the future. Because if you think about it, right, there's a lot of cash out there. I've been quoted before saying there's over a trillion dollars of dry powder of private equity looking to find a home. It's probably even higher now, right? If, and if you're going to invest in the consumer, which is 70% of the economy, right? And the consumer spending, are you going to invest in sticks and bricks, a brick and mortar uh, retail clothing stores? Or are you going to go after restaurants that have drive throughs that are incredibly resilient and people wake up hungry every day looking for food probably half their food dollars getting spent at a restaurant. So I think the number of buyers will increase over time in the space that we work in. And I obviously it will be much, much more challenging for full service restaurant operators, buffet operators, uh, even some fast casual operators until they kind of figure out the drive-through aspect of it. It's, it's, going to be very challenging. Uh, and, you know, I won't spend a lot of time on it. The the damage or the, the, the wreckage is evident, but full service independent restaurant operators. It broke my heart reading the letter from an independent restaurant operator in New York City. It was just posted at uh, restaurantbusiness.com, restaurantbusinessonline.com. And, you know, just talking about the millions of dollars in taxes that they had paid or paid out in wages over 15 years and creating a path uh, you know, for people to lift themselves out of a really tough situation, myself included, right? I, we were, it was just, it gave me a career ultimately in something I'm very passionate about, but I didn't have much to work with. I got a job as a dishwasher, worked up to the bus boy, worked in the back of the house, in the front of the house. And it was a wonderful experience and built a lot of character in me. And, and I think about how somebody with a high school education can make six figures as a general manager in the restaurant business at some you know, higher volume stores, restaurants. That's incredibly powerful. You know, think of new immigrants who've come to this country and are looking for a place to build families. And, and this is a great industry to do that. So it breaks my heart when I hear there's still two and a half million people 
unemployed in the restaurant business. And that number is probably going to grow as more restaurants close and winter comes. I am worried about October, November, December, January for a lot of those uh, full service operators. But um, their ability to attract capital is going to be a challenge. The purchase price multiples will come down. There will be more distressed sales. It will come back over time. It's not the end of the world, but investors will be much more guarded around that. And I live in Austin, so it's a fabulous restaurant city with a lot of creativity. And again, it's just it's crushing to see so many wonderful restaurants go out of business because they, they can't make it. They can't make it on 20% or 30% down or, or 80% down. No, the industry is going to change. We talk a lot on all the things you hear from me across all of our platforms about the positivity of QSR. And there is the dark side of what's, what's happened through COVID. And we're acknowledging that. And certainly we know that a lot of the QSR business is a little bit, you know, is taking from, from those, those folks who are, are unable to now make it and, and no one's happy for that circumstance, but suffice yeah. it to say, I mean, I think better times are ahead. I, I mean, I'm an, I mean, maybe I'm an optimist here in, in a way that I shouldn't be, but but I'm, I think better times are ahead. There'll be some pain and challenges, but daggone it, we're going to get through it all together. And, you know, and uh, and for those of you who are listening, I'm just thankful that you're that you're consuming our content. Thank you so much for your time, Mike. I mean, it's a, it's a blessing to spend the time with you. Here's a way you can get in touch with, with both uh, Mike and me. If you have any questions that weren't answered or you want to reach out to him directly regarding the finance matter uh, or a lending question, you can ask me too. I'll just say again, in closing, please, uh, please go to our website. If you want to get our content, hang on and we'll send you a copy of the, of the recording of this webinar and, uh, and listen to the podcast too on restaurant boiler room. And, and uh, it's, it's a blessing again. Thank you so much, Mike, for being here. Great insights, brother. I really appreciated our time together. I love it. Oh, I, I, I think we make a good team together. You're incredibly optimistic. I bring my sickle to the uh, table with a black hood sometimes. And, uh, I, and I will end on a positive note that this will be a great restaurant reset. There will be incredible opportunity coming out of the other side of this. Think of all the pent up demand and the shortage of supply of restaurants. And for the operators who can survive this test, to find your character, to stand on the edge of the abyss and not fall in. This will be an incredible revival. And I, I know I'm often reminded of, you know, the Spanish flu occurred in 1918, 1919. 19. What came next? Uh, the go-go times of the stock market. Going the, roar, the, the roaring 20s. Yeah. The roaring 20s, right. So yeah. we might be looking at uh, the roaring 20s in another phase of our lives here. And, and I, uh, I feel good about that. Call on me anytime. We have a wonderful team of really seasoned people and I'll, I'll get you with the right folks. If you're looking at acquisitions, we'll be happy to help no matter the size. And, and I look at relationships as a long-term planting of seeds. Eventually they grow into trees and it may take years, but I'm more than happy to help anybody who asks for it. So thank you. It's awesome. Awesome. Thanks again for attending. Appreciate it, Mike. You guys uh, hang in there. Be safe. Thanks so much for entering the Boiler Room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes podcasts, videos, white papers, webinars, and a list of our M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital LLC give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. 
We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom. 